Well, welcome to another episode of Cuba Pete, No Laughing Matter. Hi, I'm, I'm Joe Greer. I'm the founding dean at the Roseman University College of Medicine. Pedro Jose, that's where you get the Pete from. And the idea of this podcast is to bring in these remarkable individuals and talk about how that intersects with the health of individuals, health of communities, and to ask, what do you recommend we teach in medical school to prepare the right doctor with the right virtues and the right characteristics? Well, I am truly honored and humbled this morning to have Ms. Phyllis A. James, one of the most accomplished individuals I have ever met in my life. Apart from the fact that, you know, just to throw this out, she graduated magna cum laude from Harvard Radcliffe and then went to Harvard Law School. Now she's on the advisory board at Howard, if I'm not mistaken. True? Well, not Howard University, but the newly founded Center for Women's Studies. Oh, Howard. really? Yeah. Oh, very interesting. Oh, and apart from that, she happens to be the first one in her family to graduate from college. Picked a good one. <laughs> Way to go, except for their football team, but besides that. Right. And I was telling her we have something in common. Not that I went to Harvard, I would never get in, but my daughter did and went to law school there. She is also the founding president and CEO of the Foundation for Women's Leadership and Empowerment. But this is not something new for her. This is something she's been doing her entire career. She founded this foundation to expand the access for women, specifically women of color, to affordable, high-quality education and experiences. The importance of that cannot be overstated. Getting somebody to go to college opens the door for future generations of that family. My father's the first one to finish high school, much less go to college or medical school. And the greatest thing in his family was seeing my father go up to Boston for my daughter's graduation. He comes from a small little village on the western part of Cuba called uh, Pina del Rio. And it's akin to, much like the Appalachian United States, a very rural, not overly educated area. And to have that happen in this country is phenomenal. She's uh, had one of the most distinguished career. She was a judicial law clerk, which, by the way, is extremely difficult to get those positions. It's near impossible, but she got it. So I'm just starting off with all the great things she's done. She's uh, been in private practice. She was the first African-American lawyer to uh, advance the partnership at what is now Pillsbury uh, Winthrop, which was Pillsbury Madison and uh, Sutro, Sutro at the time. She was the executive vice president, chief diversity and corporate responsibility officer at the MGM Resorts International. That's pretty impressive. And her whole career has been about diversity, real diversity. I'll go through a list of all her awards because it's pretty long and I need to pull out like seven sheets of paper for that. But Phyllis, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me. What, what drives you to seek diversity and equality? Well, um, obviously, in my opinion, as a person of color, um, I was born into it here in the United States. Um, if you are 
an African American in this society, uh, you are relegated to a certain place in society. Now, that is less true today than it was when I was in elementary school. Uh, back during the 60s, and I'll date myself, but uh, uh, one thing you learned early on uh, in my family, in my neighborhood, which was predominantly black, or I shouldn't say predominantly, was all black, was your place in society. And you learned very quickly that we are the black people, and the white people are out there in the great yonder over on the other side of town, and uh, never the twain shall meet. Now, I mean, that's the way it started off. And fortunately for me, um, I was able to uh, overcome those psychological barriers uh, through public education. How, how important was the family? your family? Well, um, my family was extremely important to my development. And even though my parents were not uh, college educated, uh, they taught me so many important things in life. The first was the importance of family and uh, cherishing other people around you. Secondly, uh, work ethic. Uh, and I truly believe that it really doesn't matter how innately smart you may be if you don't have drive, motivation, and ambition to use your God-given talents. So I learned that from uh, my family, uh, from my parents, and uh, they also taught me, and this may sound kind of strange, uh, religion, but not institutionalized religion in the sense of, uh, you know, you have to go to church, but just kind of uh, thinking about other people around you and trying to help other people. Wow. So then uh, Mark Twain was right when he said, never let your schooling interfere with your education. <laughs> right. So it was actually outside of school and all these different values. And for those of you that are parents, listen to what she said. It becomes really important. Well, we obviously have a diversity problem in my profession. It's, uh, it's embarrassing. It's uh, something that needs to change. And it's not just a matter of letting people in with diversity, it's inclusion and equity. And that's what I love about your foundation. It's about getting that education, the experiences, the things that would allow you to advance and others in your community. Right. And that becomes vitally important. I think that um, if you look at the, just the evolution of uh, the great experiment called America, I think de Tocqueville had it right, and that is um, education is the great leveling factor in America. If you educate someone, there's f 
few limits that that person um, can uh, not reach if they or overcome if given the opportunity. And uh, I do believe that uh, education is the great equalizer in American society, um, less so than it used to be because of the degradation of the American public school system. And we are just not preparing young people uh, in the way that I was prepared in public school when I was growing up, which is a shame. But I do think that the key to all or most of our issues in society is education of one sort or another. And we're pricing the, uh, the most vulnerable communities out of education in this country. That's true. And so we have to look at what is the true cost of education. And even public universities are very expensive now. Yes. And so it becomes, it's, it's just, you're 100% correct. Now, if you were involved in developing the curriculum of a brand new medical school, a brand new medical school that truly believes in diversity, equity, and inclusion, to the point that our senior leadership represents that. I'm Hispanic American. Of my senior executive deans, of which there are four, three are women, one is a woman of color, the other two are foreign born. I'm counting Canada, but the, you know, mm -hmm. it still counts. And uh, one of them, who is, she is our senior executive dean for academic and student affairs, is not only first generation college, she can, uh, she's from Germany. Her mother was uh, RN mm -hmm. during the war, World War II. But she's also a, an accomplished classical musician. Mm -hmm. She has a PhD in biochemistry. She's Phi Theta Kappa. And somebody asked me if I was Phi Theta Kappa, I said the only thing that kept me out was my grades. <laughs> but if not, I would have been in right away. And uh, she's a psychiatrist mm -hmm. who also developed the very first outpatient uh, residency program in psychiatry. Wow. Now, diversity works. We know diversity works in the business world, especially at a corporate board level and at the uh, executive suite level. We know that companies that are diverse make more money. They have different ideas. And I see many times, and unfortunately having sat sitting on boards and having sat on boards, that the issue of diversity and inclusion is much bigger push, a real push in the corporate world than it is in the academic world. Yes. And so if we're producing the future physicians for tomorrow, what does a medical school have to do to have a physician that truly looks at the world and says, we need to be equitable? Well, um, a few things. I think that, um, first off, uh, aside from the technical scientific education mm -hmm. uh, and you know, the human body and everything, that uh, doctors learn in medical school um, from a technical standpoint, I think there has to be attention to the people side of medicine. Uh, and I don't, 
I, I'm not an expert. I've never been to a medical school and I've never looked at a course catalog for it, but uh, I think it should be required that uh, medical students take uh, courses in interpersonal relationships uh, and not just, uh, you know, this is how you screen for this kind of illness or that illness, but uh, I, I'm kind of groping for the words for it, but uh, they should have to take some kind of course in human relationships. I also think it should be mandatory that they do, as part of their curriculum to graduate, that they do community service of some type uh, so that they get uh, grounded in the real people of our communities. Uh, I think they should maybe have to uh, uh, serve meals or in a place like Catholic Charities or uh, spend time reading to school kids in public schools that highly diver have highly diverse children populations. I think they have to do things that expose them to people and how to relate to people. There, there's two issues you're bringing up here. My profession's inability to communicate well. Yes. We lack empathy. And I can tell you why we lack empathy. How long does a doctor actually listen? Which is what empathy is. It's listening. It's, it's, you're never going to actually feel like you're patient. Mm -hmm. But without that empathy, it means you're not listening. It means you're going to tell That's the true. patient, come on, i got 10 minutes. Let's go. And so we have to get back to the humanistic aspect of medicine. And I couldn't agree with you more with working in the community. Our program, as well as the one that we had started in South Florida and here, we are not community engaged. We are community dependent. To the point where we look at equity that uh, voluntary faculty appointments don't go to just MDs. If you're a community leader and you're teaching our students, you deserve that title too. And so our students with interdisciplinary teams, and we just launched this last Wednesday, mm -hmm. are we, we're, gonna, uh, we're starting off in the historic west side. And they're going to be matched up by families that are uninsured, un, grossly underinsured or undocumented. And they're responsible for that family with an interdisciplinary team that includes mm -hmm. nursing, dental, pharmacy, but also social work behavioral health, mm -hmm. and uh, legal aid, because we need to get legal uh, uh, literacy out there, because many times the very first time that they come across the legal system is a foreclosure yes. or an arrest, so to have them know their rights. But our students, when they go there, and there's two things that are real important. One is they're in the community. The yes. community is not coming to the ivory tower. So what it, we end up with our students the highest rates of humility and empathy. Mm -hmm. No longer are you the king or the queen. No longer do we do that power differential where you say, I'm Dr. So-and-so, Bob. Mm -hmm. We get a title, but they do not. So, and the student learns about the real reality because the student's not allowed to ask, how are you? They have to ask, what's your most urgent need? Mm 
And as I tell the students, listen, I've been a gastroenterologist almost 40 years. Nobody's ever said that their most urgent need was a colonoscopy. <laughs> a little disappointing, but you know. Right. So they're going to find out that, wow, they have to really make a choice between dinner and insulin. <laughs> or they have to make a choice between sending my kid to school. My goodness, since I don't have, I'm an hourly worker and I have no benefits, when I go into this great health system, that means I make 20% less this week, mm -hmm. plus the transportation, plus the doctor's fee, plus the prescription. And the doctor, the industry of medicine is made such that you get paid for the more times you see somebody. Yeah. So come on back. That's another 20% less. When you could have very easily called them up and said, listen, we have to do this and this, or guess what? Everything's normal. Mm -hmm. So we got to fix that vending machine. Yep. But it also teaches the students about the social determinants of inequality. We like to call it the social determinants of health, but it's originally the social determinants of inequality. And of course the medical profession and hospital systems love it when we work with them because we give them a return on investment. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, which was not what we wanted to do, but it was, we were looking at what are the inefficiencies for these individuals to give them the opportunity to get to resilience. Mm -hmm. As Dr. Brewster says all the time, we're not here to make poor people better at being poor. No. We're here to bring people to resilience, to bring people to flourishing, to have them have the same opportunities that you have had, that I have had, and those opportunities that are then afforded to our families. I think one of the most important things you can do with um, your uh, students is, and uh, I think the medical profession has to re, uh, redefine or re-characterize the persona of the physician. Uh, traditionally, uh, we have treated doctors <coughs> as, gods, as priests. gods or demigods. Right. Uh, because somehow or other they have superior intellect because they have mastered a certain amount of knowledge about the human body and theoretically they are able to diagnose and treat illnesses. Um, but uh, they don't have any sense of servanthood. And <coughs> the purpose of a physician is to be a healer to uh, help restore us to a state of health and balance so that we're able to continue for the benefit of the good of society. And so they have a role. Now, um, that, just uh, like uh, other people who have a role. And we're, to me, the two most important people in society, professions, mm -hmm. or jobs, are mothers and teachers. Yes. and the two that we least support in this country. That's number one. Number two, we doctors per, uh, perpetuate that whole thing. What's the first thing they tell you when you get to med school? You're the brightest and the best. Well, I don't know. Michelangelo was pretty smart. So was Einstein. Right. I guess you're brilliant. So what makes you think we're the smartest? And actually, Lancet, the, the British Journal of Medicine, came out with a study looking at brain surgeons mm -hmm. and rocket scientists. And, and found that their IQ was no different than the rest of society. That's true. So we're not, we're not any smarter than anybody else. We work hard, but so does everybody else. 
And when, you know, you get the excuse, yeah, but look at how hard we work. I said, have you seen what a migrant worker does? Have you seen what a construction worker, worker does right. who builds buildings? Or... Which, by the way, they can't do their whole life because their body goes out on them. Yeah, right. I, you know, um, I think, uh, you know, in redefining uh, physicians, uh, they need to understand um, you are a vital part of society, but there are many vital parts of society because a thriving human society takes everybody in various different roles working together in order to have a thriving society. So uh, are you any better than a teacher? Not, uh, are you any better than somebody that picks up the trash? Because if they don't pick up the trash, guess what happens? Yeah. You know? Right. So I, um, I, I just think this, this whole um, kind of um, uh, uh, mystery that medicine has been enshrouded in um, has to be squashed. demystified. Yes. Yes. Let's just squash it. Yes. Okay. Right. Let's, let's uh, excuse me, let's produce the kind of physician that wants to serve. Yes. It's interesting, too, because as, if you look at the definition of wisdom, the word humble is in there. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's where we got to get to that point. We got to bring humility. We got to bring those virtues back. Right. But at the same token, they have to be in an educational environment which promotes all of that and which they see it every single day. That's true. Because they're going to learn just as much from their experience as they are from their books. Right. And you're 100% correct because as medicine advances technologically, you don't need the same skills to make diagnoses anymore. No, with artificial intelligence. Uh, and I'm not underestimating the power of the human hunch or intuition, but um, you're right. So many of the rote formulas that, you know, uh, doctors had to memorize, they don't have to do anymore. And, uh, you know, I, a large part of treating people has to do with uh, the interpersonal dynamics between the physician and the patient. And, I mean, I've had this experience myself. You feel better when, with certain doctors because of the way they treat you as a person, and somehow or other, they excite. I think there's a lot to be said for uh, that interpersonal interaction, kind of stimulating a response in your body that uh, is more open to healing than the doctor who comes in like an automaton. Uh, ask you a few terse questions and uh, says, see you later. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And particularly as we advance in technology, the communication skills become even more important. That's the right. intuitions are going to be, they're going to be algorithms that are set up for us. Yes. But you have to be trained well enough to have the intuition to say, that's an outlier mm -hmm. for that algorithm. Yes. You have to be able to take the information that's given to you on your computer screen 
and translate it to your patient in a way that they understand? I think, uh, you know, when you talk about diversity and inclusion in medicine, I, I do think one of the essential parts of, uh, you know, I've talked about immersion in community, but it is really important for uh, would-be physicians and nurses, too, and anybody else who's administering um, medical care to have actual experience touching people who do not look like them, mm -hmm. who have different physical characteristics. Uh, believe it or not, uh, there are, it's one thing for someone who has been raised in an all-white community uh, to, you know, exchange social pleasantries with someone who's a person of color, but it's another thing to get up close and personal and physical with somebody who is so different from you. Uh, I think that that's hard for some people to overcome uh, if they haven't had the experience of being able to touch somebody whose skin is different. I, and so it, the, the importance of service. Yes. And, I, and I'm glad you brought in the issue of faith. Yes. Because not, it's not necessarily religion, it's faith. Yeah. And it's believing in whichever religion you might be. I'm, I'm a Catholic Christian, and it's about love. Mm -hmm. Not to all of them. It's about taking care of other people. It's about the fact that unless we realize we're not any more special than anybody else, we need to treat people on an equal basis. Well, it's about having respect for other human beings because at the end of the day, I mean, this is one thing I've never quite understood about uh, uh, racism, sexism, all the other isms, and that is when you, uh, and I'm sure doctors should appreciate this, when you look beneath the veneer of the skin, the physiology of humans is all the same. So it's the same mechanics. And so why are we all hanging up on these superficial characteristics which really have no significance biologically? Not only biologically, but why, in my opinion, you know, the reason that medicine is so skewed to be non-diverse mm -hmm. is, first of all, economic. Yes. Number, number two is false criteria to get into medical school. For example, if you're a first-gen college and you get a C in organic chemistry, which you will never use in clinical medicine, by the way. Yeah, it's a barrier. It's a barrier, and your advisor will tell you, no, you're not going to get into med school. The kid that has a tutor says, I got a C, you know what, I'm going to retake the class, give me a tutor. Mm -hmm. I can afford that. So, first of all, I really want to thank you for all the suggestions you've given me for the medical school. And I guarantee you that almost all of them are going to be instituted in what we're doing because that's the core of who we are. We even have a social justice wall mm -hmm. with my favorite poster there being one that it just says, nah, Rosa Parks, 1955. <laughs> and the idea is 
We want to produce the best clinician for the future workforce to improve the health of our nation. Yes. We have gotten it wrong as medical educators. We have gotten it wrong as a profession of medicine. If we got it right, we wouldn't measure how many patents we have, but how healthy our country is. True. And I just want to just take the last couple minutes because you've got a list of awards. I picked out some of them. 2014 named one of the most influential women in corporate America. Okay. That's pretty impressive. That's by Savoy Magazine. She was, uh, in 2016, the National Bar Association gave her a Lifetime Achievement Award. Again, extremely empowering. 2019, Most Powerful Women in Corporate Diversity, Black Enterprise Magazine. 18 and 19, Top Executive in Corporate Diversity. Do you have a big wall where you have all these things on there? In 2017, Human Rights Campaign, Las Vegas Equity Award, Equality Award for Outstanding Leadership and Service to the LGBTQ Community. When she, we talk diversity, we're talking everything. Yes. Including political affiliation. <laughs> that, that's not always easy. And uh, in 2017, the Community Achievement Award from the Las Vegas Asian American Group. Once again, the importance of the diversity work that you do. Ms. James, it is such a pleasure to meet you. It is, uh, I, am, I am awed and humbled by your accomplishments, but mostly by your humility. You are, uh, your parents did a great job. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. And thank you for inviting me to talk about this subject um, that everybody, should be vested in because you know as human beings we're nothing if we don't have our health and uh, and health is just not physical that's right uh, you can tell somebody listen your blood pressure is fine your lipids are normal your ekg chest x-ray is all good you're healthy yeah except my house is being foreclosed my spouse is leaving me and one of my kids is an addict but besides that yes right so <laughs> you have to take care of all those things right thank you so much for coming on here and number one, number two is, you do know I'm gonna call you so you could start teaching our medical students also, okay? <laughs> well, I'd be happy to come over and but, talk about something uh, if I can. No, oh, you, you, yeah, you can, and if you can't, we'll go pick you up. <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right, Thank With that, you. from Studio A in Las Vegas, this is Cuba Pete saying, thank you for joining us, but most importantly, thank you for Phyllis A. James. Beat. When I play the maracas, I go chick chicky boom, chick chicky boom. 